Hey everyone, David Warrench here. Welcome again to the Authentic Dad Podcast. Today I'm joined by Nika McPhee, a Denver native, a mother of four, a nonprofit executive, a philanthropist, and a badass. Great conversation with Nika today. I hope you enjoy it. I learned a lot about the philanthropy world and her and her background and her very interesting story. Join me for that. If you want to reach out to me, it's furthur.coach. That's further.coach. If you want to be a guest or know somebody who would be a great guest, let me know. If you're interested in coaching, we do that, not just for dads, for everybody. You can click on the contact page. There's a free 30-minute discovery call we could do. I'd love to hear from you. And please like, subscribe, share with somebody if you think they would enjoy this. Have a great day, and we'll see you on the other side. Okay, I am here with Nika McPhee. She currently serves as the Vice President of Administration and Development Services for Americans for Ben Gurion University, or A for BGU. And they raise awareness and philanthropic support for an innovative and inclusive university in the south of Israel. Nika has over 16 years of experience in resource development and nonprofit management. Her prior roles have included chief operating officer and chief of staff for Jewish Colorado. Born and raised in Denver, Nika is passionate about her community. She's the co-founder of Sisterhood of Philanthropists Impacting Needs, or SPIN, a giving circle of African-American women held at the Women's Foundation of Colorado who pool their resources to affect change for marginalized women and girls. She's also the current board chair for the Colorado High School Charter, her alma mater, and the treasurer and secretary for Lincoln Hills Cares, an organization focused on outdoor and recreational programming for inner city youth. Nika is a 2017 graduate of Leadership Denver and a 2013 graduate of Chamber Connect, a program of the Urban Leadership Foundation. She holds a BS in marketing from Metropolitan State University and has four children. Wow. Hello, Nika. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Thanks. That for was a mouthful. In. That was a mouthful, but uh, you, <laughs> you you earned it. Um, thank, thank you very you. much. I know you're. Yeah. I know based on your bio, you're very busy. So I really appreciate your time, and uh, I think you're a very interesting person. So I wanted to talk to you, and I wanted to record it. Well, so. thank you. I'm honored to be here. Very well. Now I don't know how many of these you've listened to, but I always want to start and hear your story. We've heard a very nice bio, but kind of give me a, run me through, you know, starting, uh, you know, where you were born and how you kind of, it doesn't have to be too detailed, but how you landed there. Cause I, I think it, your path didn't, it wasn't a straight line. Right. I, I would say for sure. It wasn't a straight line. Um, as my bio said, I grew up in Denver, really in the inner city, I was the product of a single mother and the second um, oldest of five kids in the home. So it was always very crazy and chaotic. Um, but I really kind of um, learned a lot during that period. My mom was sort of this radical who grew up in the 60s and 70s and kind of bankrolled her uh, her hippie ways into a full-blown um, drug addiction. So mm. we contended with that quite a bit when we were growing up and unfortunately didn't have the most stable living environment. 
Um, I also uh, am biracial. My mom is uh, white and my father's black. And, you know, that added a, uh, a totally different layer of complexity, I think, to my upbringing and kind of really um, attributed to some of the things that I'm involved with now, both as being kind of a product of the system, but also really dealing a lot in community and all that that brings. So that's kind of an overview, but I'm happy to go into any yeah. more detail or answer. Well, any I'm questions. struck by, uh, tell me a little bit more. So your mother was, um, was she an activist or she was really involved in the civil rights movement and then kind of took took the hedonist turn that a lot of the hippies did or how did that yeah happen? that's exactly what it was actually she um she also grew up here in denver my family on my mother's side i, I actually have a strong footing in denver i'm a fifth generation native mm -hmm. but you know in those times um she was kind of the the wild child and she actually moved to berkeley california as a white woman to join the black panther party Mm. So that was a little different. And, and while she wasn't at, 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 by any means in like the higher ranks of the party, uh, she was still very involved. And so activism and race relations and social justice were always a very big part of our upbringing. And um, she would still consider herself to be sort of a radical revolutionist to this day. You will find her at every rally and protest that she can get herself to, but huh. certainly, um, you know, in the eighties and sort of the, uh, the crack epidemic, um, she fell victim to that and, mm. and, um, you know, had, had a bunch of kids and, um, is now recovered, but we certainly mm -hmm. went through a lot during those, um, addict addiction years with her. Yeah. Me loving, I love, you know, I see it on television because I wasn't born in the 60s, but I have kind of rose colored glasses. Man, I wish I lived during that time and how great the music and the activism. And then you hear these stories like people that like sort of casualties of that time. And I, I think there's a lot of darkness that when we see these specials about Woodstock or that generation, sometimes not always, but it feels like a gloss over that where some people say I have friends whose parents. Yeah, my parents were hip, not mine, but friends of mine, child of the 60s and hippies. And, you know, it's not that great, you know. Right. They, I think they kind the of got a little bit, they took yeah, it too far. It is, <laughs> on, on the surface, there was a lot of positive things that came out mm -hmm. of that time period, but there were also some real um, kind of detriments, especially as it related to drug use and, um, you know, everything that that then manifests uh, for for children growing up in the next generation, I would say. And and one of five or what age are you compared to the what's the chronological chronological order there? Um, so I uh, I'm the second oldest. I have an older mm -hmm. brother and then three younger siblings. And we're all let's see, I think. Um, within a 10 year span. So she definitely had her children very close together. Um, mm -hmm. My oldest brother is, is actually only 15 months older than I am. So we're kind of like Irish twins. And then I have a sister that's two years younger and then it kind of just goes down from there. But I would definitely was um, the caretaker of my siblings being the oldest girl and my mom as she was working through her addiction and also had to find a way to support her family was often outside of the home. So the responsibilities of cooking and, and, and cleaning and just providing 
um, it, from a nurturing perspective really fell on me. So I would say, you know, when people ask me about my motherhood journey, it felt very natural and very yeah. organic just because I feel like I've always been a mother in some capacity or another right. as far back as I can recall. Taking care of siblings, your own mother, it sounds like you may have had to grow up really fast. For sure. Um, yeah, for sure. But now you're probably, uh, as you said, very natural. And, and you, you have four. How old are your children? So um, my kids are 22, 16, 13, and seven. So they're a little bit more spread out, but um, mm -hmm. my oldest daughter, she's away in college. She goes to um, a historically black college university in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and she's studying for a nursing degree. And we sort of grew up together. I had her when I was 16. Um, and she's become kind of my best friend now that she's a little bit older and can relate more to yeah. the young adult experience. That's interesting. Yeah. Cause you were 16. So you really did grow up together. We did grow up together. We, we really did grow up together and we talk about it a lot. And I think that brought its own, um, a series of issues, but also there was a lot of really great benefits that came out of it as well. And it's certainly, I think, kind of evidence in the strength of our relationship today. So you, I mean, was, I mean, we were jumping around a little bit, probably skipping some years. I mean, you went to college and you took care of your siblings and sort of chaos and, but you've landed, how did you end up in nonprofits? Cause that seems to be where that turn kind of took you in a direction where that maybe changed everything from what you're doing now. And yeah, I mean, I would say the nonprofit kind of was happenstance for me. I actually, um, when I was still in high school and trying to complete my diploma, I was working in the banking industry. And I really hmm. thought that that was more of my future. Um, <clears throat> but I was a non-traditional student, as I mentioned, I had a, a kid at a very young age. And once I was able to complete my high school education, I just went like full steam into the workforce right. and was really working my way up. in, like, like I said, the banking industry, but my daughter had some health issues really early in life that forced me to be kind of in and out of the hospital and really be a, a in a very dominating caretaker role for her. And I just found that the corporate world wasn't conducive mm -hmm. to what my needs were as a young family. So I was just doing some temping actually, and um, was placed on an assignment at what was then the Allied Jewish Federation here in Colorado. And I was really only intended to cover someone's bereavement for a few days, but um, right. it ended up really just working out and, and seriously has changed right. the trajectory of my life. I think that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> I was struggling trajectory. <laughs> um, no, that's okay. I mean, it really was one of those kind of um, milestone or really, or, or I would say watershed moments because um, I've been able to really make a career for myself in the nonprofit world since taking on that really kind of low level administrative uh, temp assignment. Yeah. Well, you started as a temp and then it was Jewish Colorado. My understanding is you became sort of the head of all the Jewish people. 
in Colorado. <laughs> like, you, like you, you, you know, I think I've never heard it described in quite that like way. Like you were in but... charge of because because you came in an executive, right? What was your position? Uh, when I left, I was uh, chief operating officer. So okay, I well did. That, I definitely ascended to kind of the C-suite, um, really under the leadership of yeah. uh, Doug Sesserman, who was the right. CEO for quite some time. And, you know, he just he could tell a lot of funny stories about our relationship and and how we sort of grew together professionally. But I, I would say he saw something in me that I didn't quite see in myself at the time and um, really worked to kind of develop me as a professional. And um, yeah. I give him a lot of credit for that. I give him a lot of credit, but he but I also think probably what he saw was the, the talent that was there. Yeah, I think I had some innate abilities. Mm -hmm. We talk about this a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think yeah. that there were, I wasn't starting from scratch, but he certainly helped build my confidence and really um, give me some perspective as it relates to, you know, business acumen, fundraising acumen mm -hmm. that um, I, I'm really very thankful for. All right. You know, you had the raw talent and then you got the skills and, and, um, we uh, we can we can have him call in if you want. We can see what what he thinks about all this. <laughs> he would um, take. But, he would probably want to take at least fifty to sixty percent of the credit. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I could I could battle with him on that a little bit. I think. But it is kind of remarkable because you're like, all right, the banking is too um, demanding. I have a child. She needs medical care. You know, probably you're like, all right, I just need a job, some money, a temp, and then you become the chief um, operating officer or what, what were you chief something chief operating officer chief it operating didn't happen officer. overnight i will there's yeah. several years i was there in total for 15 years yeah um and probably i think seven or eight of them about a year into working there um and i was sort of down i was a peon down in the community department mm -hmm. and uh, doug sort of plucked me from obscurity to be his executive assistant so i was able to work really uh, <laughs> right alongside him as we were navigating some really really challenging times there were wars in israel there right. was the economic downturn there were other like really Kind of challenging experiences that we we really navigated together and and there were conferences that we hosted it wasn't all negative things there were a lot of no, po really no. positive things that happened during that time as well but I, I i really was able to grow in my career during that period because he would give me projects and assignments that really stretched my capabilities and allowed me to really show what i was capable of and you are also still are, but during this time, and we'll talk about spin because I think that's really interesting. But I still, I kind of want to get some context of how you integrate, if you do, <laughs> raising yeah. and still raising four children, single mom, super, super demanding. You know, C suite is a term I didn't know until recently. I know that's a thing. Um, this <laughs> job, and then the one that you hold now, like, how does one hold all these balls in the air? I know you're probably still figuring it out. Give us, give us some wisdom on that one. Yeah. So, um, you know, during all of this time where I was also, uh, climbing the nonprofit ladder, if you will, I, mm -hmm. I did continue to have children, <laughs> yeah. several children, in fact. And, um, I always wanted to be a mom. As I said, it felt very natural and organic to me. I wanted to have a big family similar to the family environment that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I wasn't really 
wanting to sacrifice my career for my family or my family for my career. I I thought that I could do both. And there were times, and I think when I look back on it, there was certainly an opportunity cost. There were many times, you know, where I wasn't able to read stories at bedtime or, um, you know, to go to the plays at the school. I, I think my kids sacrificed a lot. And also during this time I was in, I was in school to get my degree. I, I graduated, um, with my degree when I was 28, just based on a very strong desire to have um, <clears throat> have a college degree because so many teen moms didn't get that opportunity. And I, I wanted to prove to my kids that um, I could do it and that it was something that was, education was something that was important. And I wouldn't say that Doug, as as my boss was very supportive of school because here I'm trying to also contend with the family, then the school and, and this really demanding career. But he also, and not just him, but the organization afforded me a lot of flexibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never functioned in kind of this clock in clock out um, corporate world that I had been in, in the banking industry, I could come in later in the morning so I could drop my kids off, um, or work, you know, later into the evening. So it just became this rhythm where I was always working, but always studying and always raising kids. I would pause here and run here. And, you know, I, I was just, I was just bouncing all around and it was hard, but you just, you adapt and you do what you have to do. And, and that's what I did. And I had a lot of support along the way. Um, I wasn't a single mom at the time. My kid's father and I separated about four years ago mm-hmm. and he did pick up a lot of slack in terms of just uh, rearing the kids. And his mom is very involved in our lives. So we had a strong kind of family support system that also allowed me uh, the space to do some of the other things that yeah, uh, I, no, to I, do. I hear that. Like you, you had um, the, the father, your 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 ex partner. You had a very supportive um, organization. But I, I want to give you credit because I feel like there's a lot more. Like like it takes grit and perseverance. Yeah. And I remember when I was in law school, I went full time. I went during the day. I was very blessed, and I would see these people they had full-time jobs and they're going to law school at night and they would, they come to school. Um, and the, we had night classes sometimes they'd work a full day and then they would take like three hours of classes. I don't know how many days a week. And I just, I was, I was always been amazed by that. Yeah. <laughs> Cause you know, as much support you have, you're still the mother of these children and the, uh, you know, I know you weren't always the chief operating officer and you're going to school. And I think that's, that's kind of remarkable. And I'm wondering, uh, there, there's got to be sort of like a, a drive, a grit back there that was just sort of pumping in the background for you to keep going. Yeah, you know, I think there, it's hard to actually put words to it. Because like I said, you just kind of get yeah. um, an autopilot. And right. And you just do what you have to do. But to be honest, David, I think I just, I had a, an immense fear of failure okay. and yeah. of kind of repeating, um, you know, what my life was like growing up. I sort of thought when I had my daughter, when I was 16, mm-hmm. um, I, I dropped out of high school. I ended up going back to finish my diploma, but there was a, a period of sort of complacency where I just, 
I think I was like, you know, this, this was my destiny. It was to be a mom and, Mm -hmm. you know, to just barely get by. And then I, I don't really know where that changed for me, but I really, I think once I had her and I had now just this amazing person that I knew I needed to be responsible for, and I had an obligation to really show her a different way of life. I just went kind of full steam ahead. And that's not to say that there weren't major, major setbacks along the way. There certainly was, but I just, I wanted to, to really, I mean, for my oldest daughter, and we talk about this a lot, not that it, it wasn't the same for the rest of the kids, but I was older when I had them. I was much more established, if you will, in my early twenties than I was, you know, as a teenager, but I made a commitment to her that we were going to be okay. And so I, I just, I wanted to honor that. And that drove me through a lot of the decisions and um, a lot of the hard times. I remember when I got for far enough uh, along in my degree program that I couldn't do general studies online or anything like that. I would, I took, I would take classes over the lunch hour and I would leave my organization at, you know, 1145 and race downtown to campus and um, try to get back before Doug even realized I was gone. And that Mm -hmm. it just became, that was the routine. It was constant go, go, go. Yeah, no, I think you answered that beautifully. The the fear of failure, of course, is a huge motivating factor for us, everyone, excuse me, or many people, coupled yeah. with this sort of diff, sort of childhood that you had that um, um, it was difficult at times. And kids, they change everything, at least for some people. It did for me. For sure. Like, what is this person I'm now responsible for? Holy crap. And that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I hope uh, I hope she's proud. They're all proud. It's yeah. not just about her. It's just that again, we we grew up together, and um, and a lot of what I uh, worked towards in those early years was really for her, and on the strength of really just um, trying to be a, a good mom and a good role model. I think the reason I'm sort of asking these questions is because it is a really good example of someone kind of, you know, we all kind of lean into the chaos and I, I complain and whine like the next person I have, you know, children and sure. I, have, I have to go grocery shopping and I have the law practice and this and this and this and this. And I think a lot of people are going through that. And then I hear stories like that. And it's like, what am I complaining about? You had kids and get a degree and had a job and, I just think there's lessons to be learned. And I like when you said we were talking, I know it's not easy. Yeah. And I know there were times that you said I wasn't there to read the story at night, but you said it really was a, we, when we talked a couple of days ago that it was really just a day by day kind of thing. Right. And you almost like leaning into the chaos for you. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, it's still chaos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's uh, chaos has become probably like a security blanket um, in my house. I don't know that we would be able to function in any kind of yeah. uh, normalcy, only because, you know, it's still very much go, go, go. And now right. my kids, for better or for worse, you know, and we were speaking about this, they kind of take on um, your attributes. And, oh, yeah. um 
even if you intend for them not to, somehow it just happens. And, and I think we are a family now that just can't sit still. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know what to do with idle time. So if there is any kind of um, just like room in the day, we we figure out some way to fill it with more chaos with like activities or going with there, activities going there. and yeah, just moving around. And, um, it's just, it's really hard to just kind of be in the moment. Um, right. but it also, it just, it works for us. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sure there's, there's always downside and we're going to contend with that for, you know, I, I still do, and I'm sure they will as well, but I don't think we really know how to function any differently. There's, yeah. there's no routine like as I was telling you. Yeah. It's just, well, mean, you lean meaning, in. Meaning someone could judge that be like, why are you so restless? Why don't you go do some yoga? But you're like, it works for us right now. It works for us. Yes. And people, and, and there is, you know, if we were a little bit more organized and a little mm -hmm. bit more structured, um, there would, it would probably benefit us a little bit more, but then there wouldn't be the flexibility to move on a dime. If, you know, a kid can't get picked up from yeah. practice or whatever it is. Um, it, it's just hard to really maintain a routine. Yeah, no, I was talking to a friend the other day and he's, he was going to stop by and he said, Hey, it was, it was nine o'clock at night. And he says, can I come by in a half an hour? We just sat down for dinner. Like, <laughs> it's nine o'clock. And he comes over. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, well, my wife's European. Which, so she eats late, which I totally forgot right. about. And everybody's different. We all have different routines. And, and sometimes I'm very like, we have to eat at 6.30 or 7. And maybe it doesn't have to be that way. You, you told me, I think, that, hey, sometimes you eat at 10 o'clock at night. Oh, for sure. For sure. Mm -hmm. And I do get some judgment. At, like, you know, I have... Uh, friends who are moms and when they're mm -hmm. kids, especially when they were younger, it's like, okay, they put them to bed at 8 PM. And, right, right, right. You know, they're on this bath time is here and dinner time is here. We never function that way because mm -hmm. a lot of times I would just be getting home at 8 PM. And even though, yes, I could have put them to, I still wanted to spend time with my kids. I still wanted to um, you know, have a presence in their life, even if that meant they didn't go to bed till 10 that night, or if we woke up a little later and we're yeah. late to school the next morning. Um, that's sort of how we, we, uh, I, I like that you balance. said that. Cause I, when we were talking, I was sort of questioning my own, you know, do parenting and am I doing this right or that right? And perhaps the lesson is it really doesn't have to do look a particular way. And there really isn't a right as long as they feel safe and loved and you're, you're doing your thing. And if, you know, if you eat at 10 o'clock at night or you, you know, you, the restlessness works for you, perhaps we should remind ourselves that uh, you can do it your way. I think so. I, Provided that I, I they're think safe, we, you know, it, they're safe. Uh, they're safe. Um, you know, I, I, <laughs> oh, you, I mean, yeah, I, mean sure. I have teenagers now, so I hope they're safe. I, mm. you know, it's, they, they have a little bit more freedom, um, than when they were younger. And I'm hoping that they also make good choices in, in these teenage years, but, yeah. um, and, no, and, and also, I as think, we discussed, you know, thankfully, you know, that there's therapy, right? <laughs> There is therapy. Thank God for therapy. Less of a connotation these days. And I think, you know, when I was growing up, um, there was there was a connotation and it's not something my parents discussed. And I'm very pro-therapy, even if you're, you know, just, just to go, even if there's not some major dysfunction happening. I think it's a very healthy thing. 
And I think I talk about it so much. My kids are constantly rolling their eyes about <laughs> me being coachy or take a deep breath or whatever. We're just a very therapy focused, mental health focused society more and more, I think, I hope. I, yes, I agree. And I am a huge advocate. And I will say, you know, in communities of color, which obviously I, I function in, um, there's still a, a big stigma around mental health. Mm-hmm. And so in my family and in my social circle, we really are um, <laughs> really deliberate about trying to break down that stigma right. and and be very vulnerable and talk about we're broken or we have, we're having issues and just like Mm -hmm. own our feelings and be willing to talk about mental health. So I think it's incredibly important. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't know that it's that different with older Jewish people. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. The stigma of mental health exists in, in many communities um, and just in society at large. So yeah, yeah. yeah no, I, I don't, I mean, it's not a sociology podcast. What, do you have any like insight as to why you think that might be the case? Like, what is it about therapy that people of color are like, hell no. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it goes back to some of what we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know that I would use the term grit, but I think when you're, and I, and I certainly don't want to overgeneralize, but mm-hmm. I would say that, you know, people of color, uh, do have hardships um, mm-hmm. that others may not experience. Right. And um, I think once you sort of grow up and you sort of, you operate from like this kind of scarcity mindset or survival mm-hmm. mindset, um, there's just not the time or really the focus on how you feel or what you're thinking. You're just trying yeah. to make it to the next moment. Oh, yeah. No, or it's, a pay total, the next it's a total bill. luxury. It's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We're trying to exactly. get food, shelter, and water. We're not we're not worried about self-actualization. Right. Or... We're not self-actualizing it in this moment. I'm just trying to survive. <laughs> and I think that's by and large where it comes from. Yeah. I mean I can imagine it sounds a little ridiculous, you know, for not just people of color, you know, anyone who's trying to survive and it's like, Hey, you want to go sailing? Like, it just seems so like divorced from people's experience to sit in a room and pay someone to talk to them. And right. Right. And a lot of, you know, just in my own search for like good therapists, a lot of them Mm -hmm. don't accept insurance. Uh, Absolutely not around here. Right. Even if you have insurance, um, which is a luxury for, for some, um, the, the therapists don't accept it. So you're really, it is a luxury. You have to pay out of pocket to really, um, yeah, it's really prioritize expensive. your mental health. So It's crazy, crazy. expensive. It is. I, I couldn't it believe expensive. it. I was like, what? Why did yeah. I do this? <laughs> and if you really enjoy it and want and feel the need to go regularly, it's, you know, you have to budget for it. I mean, oh, it's, it's insane. And, and nothing against therapists. And most of the time, it's not even an hour. It's like 50 minutes. And they are strict for those who have been. They're like, time's up, buddy. Oh, for sure. And I don't know what your experience was, but with mine, who was great, I'm not knocking her at all. She mm-hmm. was incredible. Um, one that I was actually seeing with my daughter, it was as soon as the session was over, she pulled out her credit card machine. Oh, no. <laughs> so it was like, pay me uh, now. Well, maybe um, they could just keep that on file. It might be a little better form. <laughs> yeah, which I understand. I mean, she has to get paid and, and that's all good. But no, there, it's, it's, 
it's not always easy to prioritize yeah. your mental health. So yeah, no, I just I don't I don't want to out, you know, someone in my family, but that they went, you know, they were struggling and they'd never been and they're an older person. I was like, how'd yeah. it go? And like, well, after like 15 minutes, like I had nothing else to talk about. Like I ran, I was how is that possible? Oh, interesting. All, all of the you know, I just I think the point is sort of older people of a certain generation. I know this is huge. Um, generalization or people who aren't used to that kind of therapy culture, just like, I don't know what to tell this person, you know, it's, it just wasn't his thing. Mm. Well, that's right. So like, you know, um, a good therapist knows like the right questions to mm -hmm. ask and how to really draw things out of you. Now that's not the case for everyone. Yeah. Some people yeah. just really shut down. But um, in my experience, it's really the onus is on the person to really try to, to dig deeper and, and ask the right questions that get you talking. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pivot here. Okay. Gonna, oh, you're going to uh, pivot. I'm going to pivot. I know we're going to circle back word. to therapy. We're going to, at the end of the day, you know, I want you to tell your story 70%, but I'm going to pivot because in addition to all the things we spoke about um, I want to hear about Spin, the his sisterhood of philanthropists impacting needs. Take it away. Tell me about this. Okay, I'd love to. It's really my baby and I think one of my proudest accomplishments. Um, so Spin was founded in 2014 uh, by me and a, and a friend of mine that had just come out of a leadership program together. So in my bio, you mentioned uh, Chamber Connect which is a program of the Urban Leadership Foundation here. And prior to me joining uh, Chamber Connect, I was really very disconnected from my community. I was working really hard um, in the Jewish community and I was learning so much about community development and philanthropy and just all these right. programming and you know so many things that I thought were incredible. And I, I naively believed um, that I could translate some of what I was learning into my own community, which I was not engaged in at the time at all. So it was really my work in the Jewish community that, um, that developed that. And one of the first things that I did was join this, um, this urban leadership program. And it really was um, an amazing kind of life-changing experience because I met other people of color who were like-minded and really wanted to um, be the change, you know, that's cliche, but they wanted mm -hmm. to be the change okay. they wanted to see um, in the community. So we went through this great 10 month experience and on the heels of it, we wanted more. And we just, we had built such amazing connections and had done such great work. We felt like um, we wanted to see that continue. So my co-founder program, 10 months, my Lord. It was 10 months and I was surprise, surprise, pregnant at the time. <laughs> um, surprise. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I don't know that I got to really experience it to its full potential, but it was still amazing and, um, and intense and really also very time consuming. But uh, when we came out of that program, um, a woman that I had met during the program, we didn't know each other beforehand, really bonded. We started exploring giving circles and I was familiar with giving circles again, through my work at, you know, the Federation and the, and through the federated system. Um, and mm -hmm. really yeah, yeah, explain to that to me, the giving circle concept. 
so a giving circle is where, um, you know, any group of people that have a shared vision can bring their resources together. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that, yes, if I, I can make individual contributions to organizations or to causes, and I'm not a person of great wealth. So maybe my, and I'm just, you know, being general here, my $100 contribution could make some impact. But if I pulled that with 10 other people, and their hundred dollars, yeah. um, you know, then we can really start to to have leverage and really start making, you know, a significant impact. So that's the general idea: is that you know, it's if we bring our resources together, it makes more of an impact than if we go it alone, and especially if it's around a shared cause or a shared vision. Um, so giving circles have been around for a long time, but I was not aware, and this was in 2013, that there was really any effort or um, organized way for giving circles of color. That was mm -hmm. just like not something that I was tuned into at all. And I know we spoke about this before. Um, as we were going through the development of SPIN, we were going through some to some conferences and really learning about giving circles in other places of the country. And that's where we started understanding, you know, this whole supply and demand. And I think um, people of color like myself always felt on the demand side of yeah. philanthropy um, or a, a, of charity. That's how I certainly saw my community growing up. That was my reality with the people around me um, was that we were always on, on the need side. And so when I started really learning about giving circles um, specifically focused in communities of color, it was like an aha moment that we could be on not only the supply side of philanthropy, but that we could really help steer our community through charity in the way that we felt it should go. Um, yeah, I love that. I saw that you were, were quoted saying that you were sort of the recipient, but never sort of imagined that you could be the one giving. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I had been the recipient of so many people's generosity growing up, um, but I never imagined, even as I was doing uh, philanthropic work and, and working in the nonprofit sector, that I would ever be able to call myself a philanthropist. And even yeah. the notion of that term is, you know, it's unrelatable for so many people. So our goal in, in in founding spin or one of the goals was to kind of like shine the light or change the the paradigm of what philanthropy meant to people and that it right. wasn't just for the bill gates and the oprah oprah winfrey's yeah. that if you were really strategic and intentional about your giving that you could be a philanthropist too i think this is your quote um you, you said that in in something i was reading that you know you thought the notion of giving to charity was reserved for like the all, not just white people, but the ultra wealthy. And it's like, it doesn't have to be that way. And in fact, we should point out that this is the first um, giving circle of uh, in Colorado, right? For African-American women. For African-American women. So we, um, we really followed the model. There was an existing giving circle called Denver African-American Philanthropist, but it was all male. Mm -hmm. And they had been around for a couple of years and they had partnered with one of our large community foundations here, the Denver Foundation. And the foundation, in fact, had gotten a big grant to um, try to 
uh, encourage other giving circles to form. So they were the ones sort of working with us to help develop what SPIN eventually became. I think where we went in sort of a different route from DAP and some of the other giving circles that have since been formed um, is the focus on sisterhood. That was really kind of what um, differentiated us in many ways. And we were really intentional and, and I've spoken a lot about this in sessions before even the philanthropy, which is the foundational element of a giving circle, we put the sisterhood first. And um, why that was is because so many of us had these jaded views of relationships with other black women, um, mm-hmm. either that stemmed from our upbringing or even current, you know, lived experiences and at the time um and i think it's still true today but you know like basketball wives and real housewives of atlanta bad girl there were all these like pop culture shows that really portrayed black women and what we felt was a very not only just negative but one-dimensional light so for us when we we had a group of friends and it was a small group and then we were thinking of others to add and as we started talking we were all all reflected on experiences growing up where uh we just thought we shouldn't get along with other black women that we were always in competition with each other that there was a cattiness or a distrust in the relationship Mm -hmm. so what we did is we spent probably the first year and a half just bonding together and we wanted to really be role models to other like really around the middle school age middle and high school age to really be sort of like mentors to other young girls to show that you know there's a different side to black women than maybe what's portrayed in the media or maybe even what you've experienced in your own kind of social circle i I was not aware of this but i will (laughs) say that i get along very well with black women me personally but not everybody does um Um, yeah i think there's there's been some issues you know amongst each other and that was something that we needed Mm -hmm. to just wrestle with right off the bat so i'm glad to glad to hear you no problems on this end but um (laughs) you know obviously i'm joking it's really nice and because i'm also i I love that i was not aware of that and i also really love when you that you're basically showing because the the money and the circle is going to young um, women and and you say you're showing them kind of how to love themselves and what a path to success could look like. Tell me a little bit more about that because that's kind of awesome. Yeah, we, um, we were very, again, intentional about um, who we wanted to serve with our philanthropic dollars. And, um, you know, again, we really felt that it was important for us to focus on Uh, not specifically black girls, but just marginalized girls, uh, women and girls that um, are are finding themselves kind of disenfranchised from society. And again, it was just because so many of us had those experiences growing up and yet we were able to overcome them in various ways. And so we wanted to show and work with these organizations. Now, let me step back for a second. Our, uh, we, we're giving out charity. We're not creating programming. Typically, we want right. to complement the work of existing organizations and really, uh, you know, give them the capacity to do the great work that they do, not yeah, compete Yeah, it with sounds them. like you're sort of a partner with some other 
we partner. So we're not going out and, and creating our uh, or recreating the wheel. We're identifying smaller organizations, ones that usually don't have the infrastructure mm -hmm. to secure big grants or you know, other philanthropic support and giving them, it may be a thousand dollar grant or a $3,000 grant, but just enough to sort of bolster their, their, um, their efforts. And it's not even just the philanthropy. We there's this saying, and it's not unique to us, time, talent, treasure, and testimony. Mm. Um, and so it's not just the treasure. We're also working alongside them over the course of the grant period to lend our own skills or expertise. Like if we have a web developer, you know, helping them get their website going, or maybe we're program um, participants or just whatever we can do yeah. in addition to the, to the grant to really help them um, carry out their work. Did, did you have any mentors or people you looked up to growing up that you either knew personally or even could be a celebrity? Was there someone that you're like, I want to be like that person. So I can imagine your would be an amazing one for younger women now, oh, because you. not just women of color, but women, you're in charge of these organizations. You're running them and a mother and starting, you know, um, spin and all of these things. So who did, did you have anyone or? Um, yes. So one, I will say that I think mentors are incredibly important and I didn't have one um, myself growing up, but my sister, who's two years younger than me, had a mentor, I want to say from maybe elementary school that she is still connected with today. Oh, cool. She became a part of her family. Um, they are incredibly close and she really made a profound impact on my sister's life. So mm -hmm. I'm a, a big supporter of um, yep. mentors. And then I think for me personally, um, my grandmother on my mom's side, she's 95 right now, is one of the most incredible Ooh. women. Um, Good genes there. Nika. <laughs> yeah. I know she's, she's really, she's a saint among saints. I'm, I, I have to say, and um, she just always was someone that I looked up to. And even though we went through incredibly hard times, my grandmother was sort of the constant and she was educated. She is educated. She's still alive. Um, and she was strong and independent, but also incredibly loving. And I just always wanted mm. to emulate her. So she's still sort of my North star. And, oh. um, I look up to her a lot. Yeah, mine is Doug Sessman, but that's really, really <laughs> sweet. I'm really... Yeah, I, Doug would be my my second choice. Okay, so yeah. In no, case he's, he's um, listening. People people listening to this wondering, who the hell is this guy? Why do they keep mentioning it? It's yeah. an inside joke, okay? It's an inside joke, yes. <laughs> he's a real person, though. Yes, he is a real, pre he is a real person. Doug Sessman will listen to this. Hello, yes, I, I hope you're listening, that. Doug. Hi, Doug. One point, at some point, Doug Sessman will listen to this. Um, of course he will. He of course. Uh, we'll see if he has the attention span to make it through the whole thing. I'll, you know, he could, he could listen to 50%, 70%. Um, there we go. You know, it's like a racquetball, you know, it goes by fast. And... <laughs> um, I'm so enjoying I mean, myself. What'd you say? I said, I'm enjoying myself. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I don't want to take up too much of your time. You're a very busy person. Um, Thanks. Anything else that we... Because I want you to be able to tell your story. What did we cut? Anything else you want to say? 
Um, no, I, I think we, I mean, of course I could say so much more. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, it's just, I really appreciate when people acknowledge that I have this kind of complicated, very busy life. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, and, and that is all true. It, it's very true. And anytime that I actually get an opportunity to like take stock of everything, yeah. I'm like, wow. But, um, you know, I'm just, just trying to do good things and be a good person and, um, and be a good role model for my kids and for my community. And for me, it's just, it's just the way that it should be. And I don't think I'm special in that. Um, I think a lot of people are working towards the same thing in different ways. And, um, I'm just, I'm just very thankful and, and feel honored to have the opportunity that I've had. And it, it must, I would, I would hope, I would think you meet some of the impact, right? You meet some, you meet the women, you get to know them or some of the people that you've helped as well. That must warm your heart. It does. I met, um, just a quick story, but I gave a, a commencement speech for a very small graduation where I graduated from actually mm-hmm. um, a few days ago. Wow. And I'm the board chair for the organization. And um, I was on a call last night. And uh, that's like prin- another layer that we did. You're like the chairman of the board. I know it was in your bio. You're giving commencement speeches. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I, I graduated when I actually did complete my high school diploma. I went through a small, very small, what would be called an mm-hmm. alternative school and now is a charter school. Mm-hmm. And even today they serve, I think, 95% students of color who, for whatever reason, can't make it through traditional high school, either because of a family commitments or, you know, behavioral or whatever it may be. Um, so these are kids that have dealt with really hard uh, life circumstances that other kids their age just don't have to deal with, and they need a lot of encouragement. And so I was giving this commencement speech, and I what you never know how these things go, yeah, and yeah, yeah. if they'll resonate with someone. But I was on my board call last night, and the principal mentioned that one of the graduates was I think 37 weeks pregnant. Mm-hmm. And that my story, you know, being a teen mom just really resonated with her and made her feel like, you know, maybe this particular choice or circumstance doesn't really define her future. And that's what you do it for. You know, things happen. Um, yeah. I, mean, I even think it could be even more than that. You know, who knows? 20 years from now, she could, be, she could say, you know, I heard this speech at a commencement. Oh, so. And actually that one changed everything. I think that's totally possible. I would just, uh, that would be just if, what's the saying? Uh, Dianu, Dianu, it, it, it would have been enough. It's um, Dianu, yeah. Dianu. It would have been, yeah. been, been enough, yeah. It would have been enough. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, Look at you. it would have been enough just to give the speech. To have that happen would just yeah. be like, that would right, be all because those I, are hard gigs to you know what do we say how do you get the right tone you know you don't want to be cheesy but you just want to be inspiring and it sounds like you, you nailed it if she's like look this person you know i could well if it's my just story. one that's i'll take just just the one, one and yeah. that was all i needed so i felt uh, that was really nice to hear and that's what that's what spins about um that's what certainly motivates me. And, um, mm-hmm. and hopefully I can do that, not just in, you know, my personal life, but through my professional work as well. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say, um, by the way, I love, we haven't been many times, but I know the city's changed over the years. I really love Denver. We went, I don't know, two or three years ago 
Yeah, I heard that. It was that. so cool and interesting and progressive and we had great restaurants and we walked around. I really liked it. And uh, I think that's something, including me, you know, that we sort of, it's the community maybe has become harder and harder because people aren't as connected. Yeah, and no, that's you know, true. There are less like institutions, whether it's synagogue or church or, you know, clubs that people just it's don't go to as much. They're not as there's not enough glue that binds us. And so for you living how you know your whole life there and investing in that is very admirable to from a community standpoint, you know, because we it just seems you know, that it's, it's harder and harder to connect. And, and maybe that's, but some people have said part of why the politics are so polarized because yeah. there's less things to kind of level us off and bring us together. So thank you for giving your community. I'm inspired to do that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And, you know, as we spoke about the every, uh, the other day, everyone has their own approach. There's yeah. no um, one side to this. And I think as long as right. people, whether it's just even trying to be a good person and your own family, and that's your nuclear unit, and that's all you do, that's great too. Just be a good person. Yeah. And, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, and there's a book, it just came out. There's a, you probably never heard of this guy. His name's Derek Sivers. And he, uh -uh. his background is not important. But he wrote this very, you can read it in like two hours. It's called How to Live. And it's like these basically 25 or 27 little essays of living life through these really different lenses. It's mm -hmm. really amazing. You know, it's like, you know, there's a community one. There's one where it's like a person's radically independent and lives, you know, on a farm by themselves. There's, um, you know, get married, don't get married. Um, be a philanthropist. Don't. It's just so. The point is, there's so many um, directions. Exactly. That one could could go in. So many lenses to try on, and there isn't any answers. So it's really great to hear yours, because I think it gives other people um, some perspective, and it also it kind of relaxes me a little bit hearing your story because I feel like I'm a little hard on myself and. And I like want to lean into the chaos more. So thanks, man. Oh well. Woman. I yeah. think you're great and well, I you think your just... family is amazing and um yeah I'm happy to um and, and, yeah thank you for doing this 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 is this means a lot I know it's you know it's not easy to take an hour out and record a conversation you know and so I really appreciate it and um that uh, that's it I, I hope you have a have a great day and um I really really hope Doug Sessman listens <laughs> well, I, I can send him a message. You know, I have to <laughs> give him some direction so I can. Uh, just I hope force my wife him listens. Into it. I hope my wife because she doesn't. She 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 doesn't catch a lot of them. You know, she's like, minimum, well, I hope Karen I, listens. Yeah, she's I, like, I, I caught a snippet and I heard you in the kitchen, so I don't really, you know. <laughs> well, I, cool. I'll follow up with her as well. Maybe I'll put mm -hmm. a meeting on the calendar. Yeah, circle back with her. I'll circle back, follow up. And you know, maybe you all, all can pivot because at the end of the day, <laughs> it's a good conversation. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you, David. Yeah, this have has a great, great night. Yeah, you too. We'll talk soon, I Hopefully hope. Hopefully see you in Colorado one day. Yes, I would love to host okay. you guys. All right, all right take care. Bye-bye. And there you have it. That was my conversation with Nika. Nika McPhee. It was an awesome one. I hope you enjoyed it. I learned 
uh, a lot about this sort of uh, circle of giving world, philanthropy, the nonprofit world. And I think she's a really fascinating person. Don't know how she does it all with the four kids and embracing the chaos, something I've been trying to do more and more as things reopen. Appreciate your listening and su supporting and subscribing, and we'll see you next time.